Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Magnolia. An epic mosaic of interrelated characters in search of love, forgiveness, and meaning in the San Fernando Valley. We did it. <laughs> Even when movies are only two hours long, we usually take two nights to watch them just from working through the day and then having to deal with children and then you know we don't start a movie till eight or nine o'clock and it's just like I only have attention for an hour's worth of this movie so it was reasonable to assume this one might take a while we sit it all in one sitting three hours and eight minutes this movie is Mm -hmm. and we watched it all all the way through all the way through we paused to go to the bathroom but like we just we watched it all in one evening so that speaks to its compelling nature this movie's too long. I'm, it's definitely too long. <laughs> For what happens, it's too long. But the fact that I was properly caffeinated, that, that's important. That does help. That does help. I had a decaf coffee before we started watching it. <laughs> that's, I, need, I need to qualify that. But it was compelling enough to want to continue watching it. I love this movie. Mm-hmm. And I will say that my, my critical eye was not so blinded by the fact that I love this movie to not look and go, yeah, there's definitely some flaws here. Namely, that it is too long. It's it's telling a few too many stories. Even Paul Thomas Anderson in more recent years has admitted to that. Which I really appreciate. Yeah. This this movie's from 99. It's been 20 years. You should be able to look back at your work and be like, Oh, if I were to redo that today, I wouldn't do it this way. I would do things completely different. Yeah, it, it's it's just trying to do a few too many things. Mm-hmm. But God, it still gets me in all the right places. I remember when this movie came out, and I distinctly remember borrowing the double VHS copy. <laughs> it's two VHS tapes for this. It's a long movie. From a friend. I'm almost certain it was Ben Elterman and I know I tried to watch it what I distinctly remember was being like there's too much bullshit going on for me to get past like the first 30 minutes (laughs) and I turned it off well the first 10 minutes of the movie are a series of weird coincidences that don't really have a lot to do with the rest of the film other than they are explaining to you that what you are about to watch is a series of coincidences that have a deeper connection. Yeah, so all that needs to get cut. I would cut, <laughs> I would cut that immediately because it th- there's no payoff to that. And the payoff should be for the audience it being revealed how interconnected these stories are. That should be the payoff from the experience of watching this story these stories unfold. Like look at how much they overlap. Well, it, it is interesting like the trivia points this out a lot, and I'm not going into all of them because, like, there's so many deliberate or maybe even not deliberate choices mm-hmm. that wound up threading all these things together. There's like mirrors of characters mm-hmm. and things going on, and references made throughout the film that tie together, and it just goes on and on and on the list. Mm-hmm. The big mistake is not having the plot do that. That's his one problem here, is that he threaded all the characters and all these character elements together, but the plot never intersects. See, with Boogie Nights, he did this, but they all yeah. had this central thing that it's, it's a workplace drama. They all work together. 
So we're going to go spend time with this person and spend time with this person. So it, it, it had a through line and there was a reason why those people kept connecting. Now this, there's a reason why these different people are crossing over. They've got a connection, whether intentional or unintentional, known and unknown to them. And it's very complex. And some of it's really great and really well done, but other parts of it are so unresolved in a way that's like, I wasted a lot of time on this story and it doesn't service the story that is really well done. When we get to writing, I want to talk to you about what those specific stories are, but I don't want to do that yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If I'm counting in my head, I believe we've got like 11 solid characters Mm -hmm. that things revolve around, something to that extent. There's two that I would get rid of. Interesting. Okay, but give me give me the money. What's the money breakdown here? Well, the money is is pretty significant. This is a thirty seven million dollar budget. I see that. I can see that. With the way this movie was made and all the deliberate choices, you you had to put some money into this film. And also the star power. The cast. There's a, there's a cast here that requires the paycheck. Despite this being a decidedly uncommercial film, it still grossed $48,452,000. Okay, so it didn't lose the studio money, but it wasn't a hit. No, but it's not Boogie Nights. Like, this movie is not an approachable studio movie. At all. <laughs> What's the tagline for this movie? Things fall down, people look up, and when it rains, it pours. That's not that's not a good tagline for this movie. This is a movie destined to become a hit way long after it was in a movie theater. Well, if but if that's how they're marketing it with that kind of tagline, no. Unless you're already a huge, huge fan of Anderson, you you're just you're not. And nobody was. I mean, they might have seen Boogie Nights, been like, "This is amazing," but that's a very, that was still a very small group of people. The thing is, he didn't really become Paul Thomas Anderson until There Will Be Blood. True, like he did not become this mythic auteur character. No, he was the guy who made Boogie Nights. Yeah, exactly. That's who he, that's who he was, and there's and we're not shit on that at all. No. And like I've seen this, I, I, I've seen those in between movies before then. I've seen Punch Drunk Love. I really love these movies, mm-hmm. but it's not like he was this pillar in, in cinema until much later in his career. Recently. Yeah. So you can't market it based off of him. Sure. No, no, I, I get that. But this marketing is shit. Like that tagline is shit. Because I'm thinking, because <laughs> here's the thing. I already know what it's up against this year. And the tagline from a different movie is is the, actually the perfect one for this one. I'm speaking, of course, about American Beauty. Ah, uh, yes. That one is, is look closer. Mm, yeah. That's a better fucking tag. Like, that tagline is stupid for American Beauty. That tagline is perfect for this movie. It really is when you think about it. On the other hand, having come to this movie after it was a big deal. Sure. And coming to it being like, well, I know I should see this movie. And then seeing it and being like, oh, I'm so glad I saw this movie. Yeah. I kind of don't hate that it. there was no way for them to market it. For me, I think where that made me enjoy it a lot was because I had no idea what to expect when I first saw it. Sure. And I, but here's like, there's a way to market a film in that way. Um, I, specifically, A24 has got, is the studio right now that is doing a masterful job promoting and marketing films that are weird good films but weird they just 
they they fi- they have figured out whatever the formula is to be like this is how we're going to get butts in seats. So after the success of Boogie Nights, New Line Cinema gave Paul Thomas Anderson a blank check. Sure. He had brought such acclaim and, you know, it was a big success for a small film mm-hmm. that they went do whatever you want. And Anderson jumped because he went, I'm never going to get another opportunity like this. <laughs> Good on you. So he got final cut before the studio had a detailed synopsis of the film. Good for him. He got full approval. It, it is well known that at the time in interviews, he said, Magnolia is, for better or worse, the best movie I'll ever make. Fair. And I don't think he fully stands by that. But I, I actually like that quote, and especially the for better or worse part. Mm-hmm. Because what I what I really sort of see that as him saying is not necessarily that like it is going to be the best tightest film. I think it's far more this is the most distilled vision that came out of just my pure thought that I'm ever gonna make. Well, it's the one where he is like, I have a blank check. I can do whatever I want and nobody's gonna tell me to do something else. I can literally call every single shot that has to do with this movie. But here's the thing. That's why this movie's not very good. Oh, I agree. That's a problem. I totally understand. Like, totally get that. But that is also why the success or failure, and I would technically call this a failure, rests solely with him because Hmm. he controlled every aspect of it. And that's a problem. I I wouldn't call it a failure, but I do find it interesting that since there will be blood, mm-hmm. all of his work has been adapted from some deep source of source material. Now, he is very much like Kubrick with his mm-hmm. source material, where he deviates very quickly from it. He uses it as a very ground-based level of research mm-hmm. to build from. Sure. I mean, he did that with Boogie Nights as well. But this film mm-hmm. isn't that at all. No. It's drawn from either just vis- a vision he has in his head of stuff, mm-hmm influence he's getting or personal stories and that's why it's not very good mm. i mean i disagree because i love this movie oh there are things that are good about it but it's not a very good movie mm. it's what? just not Mm-mm. it is not Mm-mm. up to snuff it is not up to snuff oh it's so up to stuff it's not his best but it is definitely up to snuff no and i don't know what his best is <laughs> <laughs> i have my favorite but you know but I do, I do like that quote from him, and especially there is a little sarcasm in there and a note of like, I might not ever do something like this again, mm-hmm. and this might be the thing that goes on my tombstone forever, no matter what I do. I don't think that's the case anymore, given what he's done with his career. Sure. But I can understand making this movie and being like, this is it. <laughs> yeah. This is the pinnacle of what I'm going to do as a creator, especially after going through the process of making a film like this. Mm-hmm. He did say in an interview with Mark Maron in 2015, um, he gave a little different assessment. Quote, I'd slice that thing down. It's way too fucking long. It's unmerciful how long it is. Again, I, I appreciate that he's he can be critical of his passwords. Absolutely. And he did say that there's a few various stories. It didn't point it out in the trivia, but there's some stories that he might cut from the film. Mm-hmm. Just feeling that they weren't necessary to get the story told across. At the time of the the release, there were reportedly many walkouts from the film. I could totally understand that. This is also a very polarizing film, not because it's like bad in any subject matter, but because it's either going to grip you and you're going to want to watch and be compelled, 
or you're going to hate it immediately and sure. walk out the door. <laughs> well, after the first hour, you could you could just be like, I have two more hours of this and this is boring as fuck. Nothing's yeah. happening. I'm leaving. Yeah. You have to be gripped or it's just not going to happen. But he did get one very notable fan, and that is the Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman. Who is reportedly a huge fan of this film, which makes a lot of sense considering Ingmar's work is very good at blending very specific realism with sort of impressionistic and surreal moments. That's mm-hmm. very much a, a, like a Bergman film in some ways. So okay. I, I totally get that. So let's talk about our writer and director. And we don't have to give us credits anymore because we just got done talking about him. It's Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. let's go down both we're gonna start with writing what do we think of the writing it's not very good parts oh. of it are good like i said there are stories that are good but there are also stories there are two stories i would get rid of what two stories would you get rid of uh jerry gator and his daughter story and the whole cop the whole john c Riley thing oh see okay i get rid of both of those i love claudia gator i like claudia but when looking at the movie as a whole she doesn't connect to everything else that's going on. And the Stanley and Dickie needed to have more interactions. Oh, Donnie. It's Donnie. Mm-hmm. You wanted WizKid Donnie Smith to meet up with Stanley at some point. Either to meet up or I needed him to be so invested in his record being blown. That's what needed something. Because the problem is it's around him. But he's never involved in the person who could destroy what is his is his identity. Yeah. The other part could have been, which would have been a great mirror, is we spend the majority of this movie with Phil trying to get a hold of Frank. That's Frank's whole job. And then mm-hmm. he's there for Frank when Frank is broken. Okay. Yeah. Great. Love it. Perfect. Makes sense. The mirror to that should have been Donnie trying to get a hold of Stanley to be like, walk away walk away. You do not want your life to be what my life has been because I've been where you are. You need to walk away. That would have been a better mirror. That scene right off the back of him leaving the bar mm-hmm. and finding a payphone and getting on the getting on the line with the producers. Mm-hmm. Wow, that would have that would have really pulled it together. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he's walking out. I'm sick. Stay that way. I'm sick and I'm in love. You seem the sort of person who confuses the two. That's right. That's the first time you've been right. I confuse the two and I don't care. Hey. Hey! I love you. I, I love you and I, I'm, I'm sick. I'll, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. He's so broken. And he keeps saying, I have so much love to give. I don't know where to put it, which is also funny because not funny, but we keep seeing dogs everywhere. And I said several times, that man needs a dog. That man needs a dog. That also would have been a great thing that he runs into somebody or, or runs into Phil walking the dogs or Linda walking the dogs. And that's where he goes, I need a dog. That's how I fix it because they have like five. Oh my God, for sure. Because then that would have crossed that path there. We could have seen them at the same pharmacy or whatever. That would have been great. That would have closed some of the circle here. But it, John C. Riley and Claudette, yes, those stories are so impactful, but they also make me feel gross. It also feels like you're holding on to so much 
damage. Like you want everyone to be damaged. And I get that, but you're bringing in this. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't really like it when molestation is a part of any movie. So I don't really love it, but it's so out there. It's just so, it's so tangential. And then John C. Riley, I fucking love John C. Riley. I love him, whatever he's doing anytime. His character is pointless. He's really pointless. I know he has his moment with Donnie to be like, no, you have to go put the money back. Great. But then there's all this business about him losing his gun. He's doing something horrible. He's going to shake down this woman. And then he asks her out. It's gross. It's not up to snuff by 1999 standards. It's certainly not up to snuff in 2021 standards. So I would remove all of that. Fix Donnie. Fix Donnie just a little bit. Keep everything with Stanley the same. Except a moment or an an attempt of Donnie trying to get a hold of Stanley or the producers, or whatever have you. Actually, that also would have been great if Donnie had gotten a hold of whoever Felicity Huffman's playing. Cynthia. Cynthia, his real life wife. That would have been great if he had a run-in with her to be like, you're like you, you're abusing these kids. That would have been a great scene because they're both fabulous actors. Also, just funny because of the real life situation. That's, that's where, for me, no. Because it distracts from what is so great about Linda and Earl, and Phil, and Frank. Those scenes are so dynamic. Even the business of Linda getting all these prescriptions. That whole sequence is harrowing because you feel all the pain that she's feeling. Well, no, no. It switches on you because you suspect she's just getting drugs for herself. Yeah. That's what it's, or I just want, I want to make sure that I'm getting all the money with the lawyer talk. That's what you suspect. And then you find out, no, I did marry him for his money, but now I really love him. And now he's dying and I am heartbroken. I want to change his will. Can I change his will? I need to. No, you can't change his will. Only Earl can change his will. No, no, no. You see, um, I never loved him. I never loved him, Earl. When I met him, when I started, I met him, I fucked him and I married him because I wanted his money. You understand? telling you this, um, this I've never told anyone, uh, I, I didn't love him, but, but now, you know, I, I know I'm in that will, I mean, we were all there together, we made that fucking thing and all the money I'll get, and, and I, don't, I don't want it, because I love him so much now, I fall in love with him now, for real, as he's dying, and um, I look at him, and he's about to go, Alan, he's moments, he, he... I took care of him through this, Alan, what now then? Let's listen. Because I can't face it, what do I do? So she wants to kill herself, which is also horrible and depressing. But I totally get it. And it's so well done. And then you have the Frank of it all. You have the Frank of it all who has completely rewritten his life in public to denounce this man. Yeah. And then at the very end, he can't, he can't help but to feel horrible about it, to be broken. Down. This thing that he says doesn't bother him breaks him down. <laughs> it's so well done. And That other shit distracts. I will say that I don't know that I would necessarily get rid of any of those other characters, Mm -hmm. but I think you're right in that the decisions that he makes, especially with Jimmy, Jimmy's escalation right at the end is too much for the subtlety in which the story has developed everyone else's damage. Yeah. To suddenly reveal something that big so late in the game Mm -hmm. really 
undermines the level of craftsmanship that you've put into the whole rest of the thing. I, I think there's a more simple way to do it. Him just not showing up for her or him having been so dedicated to the game show. Neglectful. And have his wife in that moment where he confesses, I, I've, I've been bad. I, I cheated on you. Just mm-hmm. to say that. And for her to be like, I'm going to accept this. And now I'm going to tell you all the ways you've ruined our daughter by abandoning her. Mm-hmm. That then would have really cemented it because it would be far more subtle. But then we still have all this stuff with Claudia. For no, like, it does, here's the thing. There's so much time with both of them and there's of no consequence. I, I, I don't care. That diner scene, though, I love. <laughs> I love that restaurant scene so no, much. No, they're fabulous. Do a movie about them. They, they're in their own movie. He did. That's, it's Punch Drunk Love. Um. <laughs> there you go. That's fine. That's fine. I know. But that's how misplaced this is. Yeah. I'll roll with you on that. But God, when it lands, it lands. Oh, it's it's fabulous. I also didn't really. Okay, so this is more of a directing thing, but I didn't really love them all singing. It's a choice. <laughs> it is a, it's a very distinct choice. And I'm like, I get what you're going for, but it doesn't work. It totally pulls me out of what's happening. I think, too, it, it, it doesn't happen in a place that feels deliberate. No, it feels very deliberate because it's like, oh, this we're about to we're about to accelerate what's happening here for everyone. That's fine. The problem is we didn't do that anywhere else. There should have if you were going to do this, this is a moment where all of our characters are experiencing the same thing. That's essentially what he's trying to say. A moment of reflection. <laughs> a moment of reflection. They're all having this happen at the same time because this is tech like a lot of this is all happening at the same time. Yeah, that's fine. If that's the story you're telling, you have to make that clear throughout the entire movie. So you either needed to do that more or you don't do it at all. That's the choice. This is very much one of those cases of he swung for the fucking fences. Oh, I, I get it. I totally get it. And he got a single or a double. I'd say he got a double. No, but no baseball. <laughs> <laughs> this is David's long-winded way of saying she's right, but I don't like it. So number one, you're right. Thank you. I I need to, I need to, I'm going to make that your ringtone on my phone now. (laughs) Building off that then, I think what's interesting is, and this is where I think we have the difference. Does that factor bother you enough that it takes you out of your enjoyment of the film? Or do you love the parts that you love so much that you still fall in love with the movie? And I fall on that latter side where I go, yeah, I see that. And yet I still kind of really love this movie. (laughs) And I still kind of really love it, even with those flaws. The things that are so good are so good. I know. Like I'm I'm not denying that at all. Oh yeah. Yeah. But the whole like the whole thing we're doing here is bringing a critical eye to the film. Absolutely. So uh, I agree with that. That's what I'm doing. I'm bringing my critical eye, my very critical eye <laughs> to the things that don't work for me. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to question my feelings of like I really love this. Am I am I missing as long as you can acknowledge that my criticisms are correct criticisms. They are because because like you say, we have two or three circles of mm-hmm. characters pulled together really well. Yeah. And then we have just these other couple of outliers that don't get fully pulled together. They don't get intertwined in a way that makes them important to the story that is so well intertwined. 
Yeah. So they just feel like dead limbs on this tree. Yeah, it's true. And it's a shame because all those characters I still love just as much as the other ones. And I wish that we had figured out a way to pull that together. How do we feel about him as a director in this film? I said this several times, like he loves his one shots. He loves one shots. He loves weird angles. And and it is interesting how much he uses camera motion Mm -hmm. to dictate tone and tempo. The camera is a character. Yeah. For him. Because you can tell the scenes where this is a static shot or this is a shot where we start here and we're going to move over here just a little bit, but you're in the same room. And then he loves those shots where we travel and we're going to do a oneer, And this is a whole lot of choreography happening, which I fuck. Okay. Anytime there's a behind the scenes video (laughs) of how a group does a single take of like 12 million things happening once, that's when my brain lights up and goes, yes. Please, I love this so much because for me, that's that's like the real part of theater. He loves that. And he did that several times in this movie. Oh, yeah. He uses music so well in this. He's so great with music, with the exception of the singing scene, which I think was needs either needs to happen a lot more or not at all. Yeah. But like Donnie in the bar with Super Tramp mm-hmm. watching his love fade away is just so so poignant oh yeah it is so wild to watch boogie nights and see bill macy as a laughable then shocking character and then to watch him in this and it's like it goes beyond sad sack Mm -hmm. and goes into tragic territory yeah he full-on makes you feel everything for donnie and it's so good (laughs) and like all of that you know all of those feelings that you get a good chunk of that is accomplished in how he f- frames and, and makes those car- characters work. I think that's probably the most beautiful framing of what is what he does with Donnie. I love Stanley, too. Well, they're very similar. And they're meant to be. They're, they're meant to be. Um, I felt like most of the time when we were watching Stanley, we were at his level. Yeah. Like, so it was a lot more like looking up at dad and looking up at the adult because he's a kid. And there's a costuming choice that somebody pointed out with Stanley that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Is that with the with the haircut the exact way it is and those and those blue eyes, mm-hmm. that character is styled to look so similar to Dreyer's silent film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, with an actress whose looks mm-hmm. conveyed everything. Sure. And there's so much framing that's just like taken straight from that movie for that character. He is pulling out like a ton of bag of tricks for this movie. And the way he films Earl is wonderful. All of that, especially the stuff with him and and, um, Phil. Love it. Love it. It's all perfect. So good. Well, uh, this was intended initially as a shorter, more intimate film. (laughs) Big shock. Big shock. He started the story with Claudia Gator, and it was initially just going to start from there. And then as he wrote and developed the characters, Mm -hmm. he found he wanted to dive into all those characters. And from there, he realized he had to expand the plot and, and try to interlink them all. Again, like we say, he's not fully successful at that, but I get where he went, oh no, I have all these really great characters. How am I going to make them all work together? If we did this today, it would be a TV series. It would be fascinating. It would be lost. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but you could do it with this kind of story and make it really compelling. Minus the cop. I mean... Gotta be careful about how you do cop. For real. I mean, I love John C. Riley, but 
love John C. Riley, but I don't love it. Like I don't I don't want to see this. Give me himbo porn star John C. Riley. Himbo porn star John C. Riley. Or sad sack Chicago. Mr. Cellophane John he C. Riley. He just wants to be a magician. The title is a reference to Magnolia Boulevard in LA, where most of the action centers around. So the okay. restaurant, the different buildings, all of that's happening there. It is also a reference to a scientist named Charles Fort, who pushed the boundaries of re- scientific research to try to understand strange and unexplained phenomena. Okay. Like all the strange coincidences that we talk about, mm-hmm. and including things such as frogs falling from the sky which is something specifically mentioned in Fort's works. Okay. Well, that is a thing that can actually happen. And I have to say that that moment is like, this is my nightmare. This is my nightmare. I do not like frogs or toads. I will not go near them. Once, David and I came home and there was a frog right outside the car door because we were parking our car on the street. And oh my God, I nearly shit my pants. I, was, I don't want it to come near me. I don't want to touch it. It is my so frogs raining from the sky is literally the worst possible thing that could happen to me. I would rather be covered in spiders. I would rather see a snake in my own damn house than have a frog in the house. <laughs> I'm not even kidding about that. You know how much I dislike snakes. Lilla. But this this is the worst thing that could happen ever. I was gonna say that for trivia. Yes, it is a known phenomenon. What what tends to happen is that a tornado or some kind of storm will go over a lake mm-hmm. where frogs are, and then it'll get sucked up, and then it'll sort of spray, and, and you get that sort of rain. Philip Baker Hall actually had an anecdote that this happened to him in Italy one time while he was on vacation. So there was, there was some slight connection there. At one point, Stanley actually reads a book about Charles Fort while sitting in the library. You can kind of see it if you're paying attention to the okay. books there. And also... The bark of the magnolia tree has been shown specifically to have medicinal effects. In some lab stories, is known to have anti-cancer properties, though that has not been officially confirmed in actual trials or anything like that. Okay. Because of all those references, it also makes sense why every living room in the film contains a picture of a flower. Okay. The film does take place over a 24-hour period other than the prologue and epilogue. Mm-hmm. And in some early versions of the script, Anderson wanted to make it clear, either through narration or something else, that all of the events were occurring in a very limited area, maybe one square mile or 10 square blocks. Mm, okay. As he was working on the project, he was like, this is going to be way too hard, or I'm just going to confuse everyone. It's not worth it. So he wound up scrapping that. But he initially didn't want it to just be such a tight timeline he wanted it all to be in the very same area see the way you do that is you get rid of all the front loading stuff but you can't reveal that detail until the end oh absolutely but what you do is you create better establishing shots of our location yeah and then you pull them all when you pull out at the end or at a pivotal moment you realize there's that building, there's that building, there's that building. We've been to all these. These are all near each other. These people are traveling right next to each other. There's a way to do that cinematically that would have been really cool and beautiful that would have given that piece of information. Like even just connecting these two are like, you got here really fast. Yeah, I live down the street or the bill, like we're not that far. Yeah, he just, he, yeah. he thought about it and decided that it was too much for the story he felt like he wanted to tell, but- If he'd have pulled that off, it would have been amazing. (laughs) Yeah. 
New Line Cinema, seeing what was going on, really wanted to make this a Tom Cruise starring vehicle, and they wanted to market it as such. Anderson immediately balked at them. He said, this is an ensemble film. I refuse to let it be anything other than an ensemble film. I understand Tom Cruise is in it, but that doesn't change the fact that everybody has an equal part to play. And to ensure that the marketing team did not get their hands on it, he designed the poster and edited the trailer himself. The trailer actually doesn't contain any scenes from the film. It's an establishing shot for one of the main locations for each of the characters and them looking at the camera introducing their characters. It's a choice. It's a stupid fucking choice. I, I agree. So what did I just say he needed to do? <laughs> establishing shots of locations. We needed that. We don't need character introductions. That's stupid. Unless you're doing a mockumentary, documentary style film, you don't do that shit. This movie would have done better if they had promoted Tom Cruise. But here's the thing. It didn't have to be just Tom Cruise. You can cut a trailer that focuses on this guy. You can cut a different trailer that focuses on the other guy. Like, make it a mystery of, like, what is this movie about? Because I've seen four different trailers, and each one's focusing on a different character or different set of people. What's going on here? From a marketing perspective, that was fucking stupid. Like, I get it. To him, this is an ensemble piece. This isn't the Tom Cruise show, but it's the Tom Cruise show. <laughs> Watch this movie. It's all the fuck about what is going on with that guy. It just is. Well, and here's the thing. Tom Cruise is so good in this movie. Tom Cruise. I mean, I mean, we just need to go to cast. <laughs> well, no, I've, I've got a few more things. Amy Mann's music was one of his key points of inspiration for writing. He was listening to it all through the writing process. We know there's the moment with Wise Up where they're all singing, but there's one lyric that he actually uses a piece of dialogue that we know of when Claudia says, now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? It is a very slight variation on a lyric from her song, Deathly, mm. which is such a good line. Oh, it is. And funny enough, the song Wise Up also appeared in Jerry Maguire. Oh, okay. <laughs> so then we get to see Tom Cruise sing it. A few years later. I mean, this is <laughs> Amy Mann. She was building. I mean, she had been featured heavily on uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Then this happens. And Save Me just can't like. That song is beautiful. It's a beautiful song and it's perfect for this movie. It's perfect for how it's used at the end of this movie. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's fabulous. I really don't love Wise Up. But Save Me is just. I mean, I've heard it. In, I've heard it in other shows. And I'm just like, man, that song's that song's amazing. I still remember the fact that that she got best new artist at the Grammys after this album came out. And she went up there and was like, I'm not fucking new. <laughs> I've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. I think, I, think, I think another one of her more recent songs ended up on Grey's Anatomy. And so like now she's like this cultural phenomenon. She's on Portlandia, which is hilarious. Oh uh, the whole bit of that. Like, hey, Amy. Hey, Amy. Hey, guys. Yeah, great. I brought Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> it's so great it's great amy mann is not without a sense of humor she knows she knows who she is and she has fun with it and i appreciate that greatly anderson of course did engage in a lot of foreshadowing and references to exodus 8 2 but if you refuse to let them go i will plague your whole country with frogs they reference the numbers eight and two in different variations and different images at least 100 times in the film. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't notice that. However, he was not aware of this reference Oh. while he was writing the film. Huh. Instead, 
the frogs were inspired by Charles Fort's writing. Henry Gibson, when they were in the process of pre-production, pointed out the biblical reference to frogs. And Anderson mm-hmm. found that out in that time. And while filming, decided he was going to add all of those references in. Hmm. Okay. And there are so many of them. They're peppered all the way throughout the film, apparently. Which could be a fun game if you wanted to ever watch this movie again after seeing it. The deathbed scene, according to Philip Baker Hall, was loosely based on Anderson's own experience of being with his father, Ernie Anderson, as Ernie was dying of cancer. Which is rough. Yeah. However, Anderson has also paid tribute to Ernie in several ways in the film, in more lighthearted ways. Um, his father started out his career as a late-night monster movie host in Cleveland called Goulardi. And so Anderson's production company is called Goulardi Pictures. One of Goulardi's running gags was to make fun of Parma, Ohio for its large Polish population, hence the character Phil Parma. Oh, okay. And finally, one of Goulardi's catchphrases was, Stay sick! which is echoed in Donnie proclaiming he's sick and Thurston Howell saying, stay that way. Mm-hmm. He likes to work in some of those, those late night dad references. Okay. He screened the film network for the production team before filming began. And I can see that because especially on the game show stuff, there's so many visual cues from network in there. Yeah. I thought about that a little bit when I was watching this, that it had some of that vibe, but even despite my, very serious criticism of network that's a better movie than this one. Oh, 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 oh i stand by all my criticism wow the color scheme also contains many many greens browns and off whites the primary colors of a magnolia the more it rains in the film the more chaotic the film and its pacing is when the weather is calmer the characters are calmer mm-hmm. it's also a cue to the references in the weather throughout the film okay Apparently, Anderson wrote the script during a two-week stretch at a Vermont cabin owned by William H. Macy. He got scared after seeing a snake outside and refused to leave the cabin, so he decided to put this whole thing together. (laughs) Okay. And filming took 90 days, originally only scheduled for 77 days, which a movie with this much going on is pretty damn impressive in my book. Okay. That is not bad. Three months to put this thing together? No, that, that sounds okay. Yeah. And that'll finally lead us to our cast. Oh, jeez. Wow. <laughs> the good news with our cast is we've talked about almost all of these people before. Yep. Because we either just talked about them for Boogie Nights, or they are people who need no introduction. Correct. But we are going to start with Melora Walters playing Claudia Wilson Gator. Mm-hmm. We talked about her in Boogie Nights as Jesse St. James. What do we think of Melora Walters in this movie, despite her character? <laughs> She's great. She's, I mean, again, the restaurant scene is the best scene. It really is. It's, it, it, that one is fabulous, but I would cut her. Like, <sighs> sorry, I said the same thing about Philip Seymour Hoffman in Boogie Nights. I would cut him. Oh, that's true. That is true. I did not because I don't, I don't think he did a good job. But I was just like, you're a cutting room floor scene. Like your character, it's superfluous. It doesn't doesn't need to happen. I feel like there's a way to salvage that character, but I do get that if you already need to make cuts, mm-hmm. yeah, I get I get where you come from. I just I also I I wish I didn't have to sacrifice that restaurant scene because it's so good. It's so good, but <laughs> it's so beautiful. They're in their own story in their own movie and they, they definitely need, are. They they are. That whole storyline is its own movie. 
this is one of those performances though she she is to do a fair bit of stuff she does um she's actually been recently on pen 15 yep. that show but this is one of those movies where you go god i wish i i saw more of you somewhere yeah. down the line she's really really good then we get tom cruise as frank tj Mackey. now i'm sorry who who's this who are you speaking of uh calm truce calm truce yes william mapother mr mr mapother william tom cruise mapother the fourth we did a whole ass mission impossible series we did eyes wide shut yeah we've we've done rain man we we've we've mentioned tom cruise a few times on our show especially when we want to make fun of scientology Oh, I will punch down on Scientology every day of the week, but I'm also super fascinated by it. So, uh, yeah, so it has to get mentioned anytime Tom Cruise shows up. And it's going to get mentioned later without Tom Cruise. Okay. And I talk about him just because I remember her watch. It's like, David, there's been no Tom Cruise running face. He doesn't run in this movie. What the hell? What's up with that? It's Paul Thomas Anderson. But he has long hair and it is hot. His hair? His hair is so hot. Okay, this is peak 99 era. Like, he hadn't done Mission Impossible 2 yet. Yeah, he was about to. He was about to, and he has long hair in that one. It's shorter than it is in this film, but you can, like he definitely grew it out. He's like, all right, we're doing this. Eyes wide shut, he has longer hair, too. It's the top, though. It's kind of shaggy, but it's mostly the top. Like, the top has got to reach the bottom. It's the whole thing. It's Him process. and that ponytail is just like, woo. You are hot. You are uh-huh. hot. And he knows it. And he know he okay, he's almost always hot. He's aware. He knows what he looks like. But here's the fun part is he doesn't always play that in those roles. Totally. He's a very charismatic man. He's great at that. This is one of those times where he's like, I am the hottest bitch in this room, and you all know it. That's the energy he's giving off. And that's usually not the energy he gives ever take it on head first with the skills that i will teach you at work and say no, no. you will not control me no. no you will not take my soul no, no. you will not win this game because yeah. it is a game guys you want to think it's not huh you want to think it's not you go back to the schoolyard and you have that crush on big titted mary jane <laughs> Respect the cock. So that's amazing. The words that come out of his mouth are so, (laughs) so offensive in the funniest way. It is fucking wild. And this is before the game was a big, big, big deal. Like it had its own TV show. Big deal. So like, I love watching this, like specifically those scenes where he's leading a group. Well, knowing just like, yeah, this became a whole movie. Like this, this, this guy is what's wrong with so many. (laughs) It is wild because P.T. Anderson has a knack for picking up on things about characters and things about trends in society Mm -hmm. before they become a big deal. Yeah. And this is one of those things. And granted, he's in L.A. This was going on in L.A. And it was this underground science of seduction community. Mm -hmm. So, like, this was a whole thing that was going on, but it just, it bubbled up into this mainstream culture of horribleness. Oh, yeah. What's so amazing is the turn that Frank makes. Sure. And how natural it is. 
Because it's one thing to have a turn in a character like that, and it feels real forced, but nothing feels forced about this turn. No, you, you know, you think it's at the end, but it's not. The turn comes when he gets called out in that interview mm-hmm. because she played him. She played the game. And once he realized, I, I'm done for. I can't, I can't, I can't win for her. She knows all my secrets. I mean, not uh, all of them, but his big secrets. He's been found out. He cannot do anything, but he also has his ego. I can't leave. I can't let her win. So he literally just sits there until her time is up. Him going catatonic into that camera is amazing. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) And he even says it. I was like, you can't say I'm not a man of my word. It's like Mm -hmm. everything that came out of your mouth before that was a complete lie. Yeah. Everything you said was a lie. And then you say that to her because you kept your time, your promise with the time. It's so perfect. And he plays it so perfectly. And even he's still trying to be that person when he go- when he gets to Earl's house. He's still, he's trying. He's trying so hard. Oh my God. The the whole thing of like, I'm not going to cry for you. If those dogs fucking, I will drop kick a dog if it comes near me. <laughs> it doesn't even have anything to do with the dogs though for him. It's just like, I am in complete and utter turmoil. Get everyone away from me. <laughs> oh, he's a man who doesn't want to be touched. No, Mm -mm. because he's been in such pain for so long. Wow. See, and that's an element where I would love to find out that he doesn't get women at all. Oh, of course he doesn't. He doesn't get women at all. That's what I would like to have been revealed between him getting called out by by the journalist and him going to Earl's is us find out he's not successful with women at all. It's just all a persona. Well, here's what we do get is we get him on the phone with Janet. Yes. Because here's the thing. I could see him. I could see it working for him in whatever twisted way. But he gets on that phone with Janet and she rips him to shreds. I was just like, I'm doing my fucking job, Frank. You have to decide. Yep. I remember seeing this because the only things I'd ever seen Tom Cruise in were action films. It was like Mission Impossible, Top Gun. And look, I loved him. I loved him in those kinds of movies, but I had never seen him do a dramatic role like this. See, I have. And it blew me out of the water. Yeah. And even today, I I know that he's capable of this and even maybe a little bit more, but still, it's so good. It it is is. wild. And I understand why he parted ways with P.T. Anderson, but this is one of those partnerships that you really think you really could have seen going a long way. Oh, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson visited the set of Eyes Wide Shut while they were filming and offered Tom the role. Tom had already reached out to Anderson because he was so impressed with Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. He, he said, if you've got a place for me in your next movie, let me know. I would love to be a part of it. Tom Cruise, a cinema lover as well. Mm-hmm. Been very vocal about that. He loves movies. He truly does. Yeah. Um, to a degree that is... A little concerning. A little... um worrisome we've talked about that at length in our our mission impossible series which is completely has been released so you can go listen to us blather on about all of those and yes we will be covering mi7 when it comes out (laughs) because of course we will um but yeah he he loves movies and so he wants to do them all so that's why maybe for him uh if you take the scientology movie out of it it's also, well, I've done that before. I've I've done that work with that person before. So yeah. I don't need to do it again. Yeah. Which is also fair. Oh, very fair. Uh, that's that's totally fair. But 
to, to which I go, well, then you're only making uh, Mission Impossible movies so that you can do stunts. <laughs> which, okay, fair. When Cruz read the script, he was actually a little terrified because this was such a different character for him. And he was like, this is way outside my comfort zone. Do I really want to go there? And then he dealt with Eyes Wide Shut for three years. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, they had to move to London. And the absolute repression and like horror of dealing with Stanley for that role. And he took this on and relished it. Partly because I know his marriage was completely falling apart. That probably helped give him the like, let me just go do something. But also because this was a loud, boisterous, outspoken role. And he could break out of that really like tight, tense shell that he yeah. had to deal with. Sure. He turned down the film End of Days, which Arnold Schwarzenegger took his place. Mm-hmm. Because he wanted to do this. And according to Philip Seymour Hoffman, that deathbed scene, everything after Cruz utters the line, I'm not going to cry for you, was completely improvised. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry for you. Mm. Cruz, in the moment as they were doing takes, the lines weren't working for him. He wasn't mm-hmm. getting the right feeling. And so he he told Anderson, I'd like to try and just improv it and see where that goes. And Anderson said, absolutely. And he said, if you want, use your own experience losing your father to, le- to lead you in the scene. <laughs> so in the next take, Cruz completely started breaking down. Mm-hmm. That's the one that's used for the film. And he just loses it. Yeah. And Hoffman's reaction and his tears were completely real. He said he did not know Cruz was going to go that deep with it. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, he was just so moved by how much emotion came out that he naturally started feeling it. Yeah, because there's a moment that you see on film where Phil looks like he's going to go to Frank, but he knows I'm I'm not supposed to. I'm not supposed to do that. That That line, that line he gives him that is just like, you will stay in the back and you will only come near him if he needs something. Because I'm not dealing with any of that shit. I'm not taking care of him. So good. Oh, it's great. It's great. Oh, but yeah. No, I. That's yeah. And again, just that connection of two creators who have both dealt with a personal loss of their father, mm-hmm. confronting that in this very intimate scene. Ooh, that's some heavy shit. Yeah. So Tom Cruise, really good. Tom Cruise, good actor. Uh, mm-hmm. Disappointing affiliations. <sighs> I gotta punch down. I can't. I can't not. I'm sorry. I know. Oh, not sorry. <laughs> Next, we have Jeremy Blackman playing Stanley Spectre. Okay. This is really his only big role. He actually just didn't do a whole lot after this. Okay. Which, hey, that's cool for him. He, I, I believe I saw he's in a band. His brother is a bit of a more well-known actor, but he just got this opportunity, and uh, I think he's great. I really love his monologue. That's the one moment where Stanley really gets to shine. I know his, again, had Donnie and Stanley connected, it really would have cemented it. It would have. Yeah. Yeah. There needed to be more crossing over. Like, or or, like, yeah, you could have even had like him knowing every single thing about Donnie and like him having a poster of him in his room or like him being like, Donnie did it. I can do it. Something to that effect. And then just to see a, a mirror of Donnie focusing on him and being like you've got to get away from this this is going to ruin your life don't do it don't do it like something to that effect like they're both equally obsessed with each other but they don't know each other yeah there there needed there needed to be a 
a direct connection between them. He is fascinating to watch. Sure. And he, he also, it's it's funny because the same year The Sixth Sense came out. And so there's a lot of Haley Joel Osment vibes. Yeah, Haley Joel Osment. Like, he's a little wonderkin. Yeah. I mean, he's he does his job well. He, he, was, he was well cast. He really was well cast. I mean, it's not the most compelling but he yeah his his scene with his monologue is very well done but it's not i also want to say like it's not overdone because that that is something that happened i do see a lot especially with young actors in movies where they want to make they're supposed to be really smart you're putting all these adult words in in them and that's fine but in that moment in that scene he's a child yeah and he needed to speak like a child and he did his his last scene with his dad mm-hmm. is just heartbreaking. Just you have to be nicer to me, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, oh man, that's so that's so sweet and wonderful and true. Mm-hmm. His really great talent was being a kid and being believable because he could have overblown it and he didn't. Yeah. We next have somebody who is an Arpon in Boogie Nights, but now he is a main featured role. So we are going to mention his credits. It is Philip Baker Hall playing Jimmy Gator. Before this, he was in Zabriskie Point. He's been in so much television. Like it was all TV movies and guest stars, mm-hmm. but he's in The Last Reunion, Three O'Clock High, Midnight Run, Say Anything, Ghostbusters 2, An Innocent Man, Live Wire, Kiss of Death, Eye for an Eye, Hard Eight, The Little Death, The Rock, Bud, Air Force One, Boogie Nights, The Truman Show, Rush Hour, Enemy of the State, Psycho from 1998, Cradle Will Rock, and The Insider. After this, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Rules of Engagement, The Contender, Lost Souls, The Sum of All Fears, The Gentleman's Game, Bruce Almighty, Dogville, In Good Company, The Matador, 2005's The Amityville Horror, Zodiac, Rush Hour 3, The Lodger, Mr. Popper's Penguins from 2011, 5050, Argo, Playing It Cool, Person to Person, and The Last Word. Hmm, okay. He is a character actor extraordinaire. And he's been in a bajillion of five things. So many. And in all of P.T. Anderson's early work. Yep. I think he's really good until we get that turn. And Mm -hmm. that's not his fault. It's the writing. Yep. What he does, he does well. I don't have a problem with any of that, but I would cut his character. Like I I would cut the background story of his character. It's not important. He's in a different movie. Make Jimmy not a leading story character, but make him a connective tissue for a couple of your other characters sure. instead. Sure. That's what you need to do in that moment. Mm-hmm. Because he's clearly important, but he doesn't need to be that important. Yeah. And part of the only reason he's there is so that you can kind of tie Claudia back into the story. <laughs> Jimmy Gator's character is mentioned by Samuel L. Jackson in Paul Thomas Anderson's first film, Hard Eight. Oh, okay. With which Philip Baker Hall played basically the lead of that film (laughs) interesting next we have philip seymour hoffman playing phil parma we just got done talking about him for boogie nights oh my god he's so good in this movie (laughs) well it's funny because he's playing such a small role it's a very understated role because it it, it was like this is what helped get, get the ball rolling for him because it just became he just became such a big character guy it's such a small role, but so important. Oh, it's so yeah, it is very important. It is so important. And he's just so good at it. Like I love him on the phone calling the the pharmacy. Hey, Brad, do this. Do you have hustle? <laughs> it's so funny. And he just like you can like you can see it in his face. Like I'm thinking, oh, I can get I can call up some porn. Cool. 
Can I get that? Wait, hold on. Wait, wait, you have that? Okay, let's see. Okay, what is what is your collection here? So great. What makes him so important is that he's grounding this story in so many different ways. And that that is where you needed that somewhere in another place because yeah. he's who Earl is relating to. He's who Frank is now dealing with in this situation. And he's who Linda is shouting at when she's dealing with things so he's their connective tissue for us to get to all of them because you know frank and linda don't have a scene together until she's in the hospital at the end and we're like oh okay yeah like we don't we don't have that and that's that's another problem with the other stories is there's 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 not that overlapping connective tissue that we need we need it and the other part of it is phil is the audience cipher because the whole time he's just like what the fuck is going on when they finally take Earl away and he starts to just finally break down of just like, dear God, yeah, <laughs> I just had to live all of this with these people. Yeah. But there's also the whole thing of like, this is his job. Yes. Because he doesn't get emotional until it's completely over. Yeah. Like Frank's gone. And then also the dog is gone too, oh. which is just heartbreaking. But, is also not that unusual. So it's kind of like, okay, I've made sure this is, I've finished my job. I've stayed on. We've come to a natural conclusion. Now I can have whatever emotional reaction I need to have to process. Yeah. Which is, which is also great. And, you know, people who work hospice care are just angels. They're saint. They're saint. Yeah, he does a beautiful thing of making him angelic in that way and making him and making him empathetic because there's so many times where characters like that uh-huh. are drawn as kind of secondary, sarcastic or cynical. Their background. Yeah. And he is there to be a caretaker for Earl, but he's also the person Earl's talking to. Yep. He's the per- and then he's also the person who's take the brunt of Linda's rage, but mm-hmm. he doesn't get mad about it. It's just like, mm-hmm, I get it totally get it i totally understand where this is coming from like it's it's really sweet it's really sweet he's so sweet in this movie i love him i love him he's fabulous let's go from sweet sweetly adorable to sweetly tragic it's william h macy playing quiz kid donnie smith we talked about him for boogie nights honestly i think back to his other roles i think this might be my favorite william h macy role no i think that's fargo for me they're both really good, but there's something about the really deep emotional well he pulls in this. Movie. This one is probably the most tragic. Oh, for sure. And I, I think the line that they had it was like, I'm just so stupid. I'm so smart, but I'm so stupid. Him under the gas station. <laughs> I don't know where to put things, you know? I really do have love to give. I just don't know where to put it. Yeah, it's he's it's great. No, I love I mean I love Bill Macy. I do. I just anytime I see him I'm like, yeah, I want to watch that. He's great. I wouldn't change him at all. I I would uh, his performance, I would, you know. Yeah. Give us more. <laughs> give him some other stakes. Yeah. There's something about him in this movie that strikes a very resonant chord for me. Whereas all of his other characters are very funny and interesting and wild Mm -hmm. in their own weirdly pathetic way. But in this one, there's something that just hits right at my heart 
that just upset a level for me and i really i forgot how much i loved him in this movie (laughs) until we get to Mm -hmm. like the bar scenes and and every time as he starts to just sort of dissolve Mm -hmm. it's beautiful the work he does it's really good we next have and also a really great performance julianne moore playing linda partridge i mean she's great (laughs) here's the thing Julianne Moore is fabulous. Yes. This is this is a fact. She's, you know, trailing Meryl with her nominations. <laughs> she's that good. She is. She, she's never bad in a movie. Yeah. Her character is another one that, like, she could have been phoning this in, but it's written so well. That's true. She makes it sing. She makes all of it sing. I believe her. I love her. Is this my favorite performance of hers? No. Probably I have not. one. Probably not. But she's phenomenal. So I don't have anything else to say about her. I have a who could have been better. The wall. Someone we've mentioned before. Of course. Deborah Winger. Um, mm. How old would Deborah Winger? Okay, that's 20 years ago. She would have, mm-hmm. She'd been in her 40s. Deborah Winger in this movie would have been amazing, but I wouldn't have put her in that role. Okay. All right. If we're going to keep the Claudia storyline. I wouldn't hate Deborah Winger in that role. Oh, no. Okay. Cut Felicity Huffman. Put Deborah Winger in. All right, all right. We're gonna swap. We're gonna. Swap. Well, that's probably the better place for. That's more age appropriate. That would have been cool. We don't hate Deborah Winger in this. We house. don't. We stand Deborah Winger. Yep. We stand. She's on that new show, Mister Gorman, on Apple TV. It's very disconcerting seeing her after having watched uh, an officer and gentleman. Yeah, she's had some. Uh, she's also had some hot sports opinions recently that you know maybe were a little over the top. But whoops. But uh. You know, she's had a very, she's had a career and she's going to say how she feels. She's never shied away from that as an actress, which you have to give some respect for. Then we have John C. Riley playing Officer Jim Curring. I love this character. I hate the framing. I think that's really where I come to with it. I so desperately want to find a way to keep Curring and Claudia in this story without the device and framing that we did for it. I don't know how, and I also agree, like, they're in their own movie. They really Mm -hmm. are. And in a lot of ways, from what I remember of Punch Drunk Love, that movie is this movie that they're in. Yep. But the way he does his own little cops pep talks, Mm -hmm. him losing the gun and being so frustrated by it and being so upset at himself and being this man who, like, really prides himself on being upstanding and trying to be good in all the ways he thinks he's supposed to be. I do love him in this movie. It just sucks the way that this character was framed around. Mm-hmm. And like you say, it might just be better. It's like, can I just have John C. Riley and Melora Walters in their own movie? Please. <laughs> because they are really good together. Oh, yeah. Frustrating. He'd been typecast so often as a heavy that he asked P.T. Anderson if he could have a part where he fell in love. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> but no. Don't work for this movie. It makes your movie messy. It's not good. Bad. And finally, in his final film role, we have Jason Robards playing Earl Partridge. Mm -hmm. We have never talked about Jason Robards on this show. Before this, he was in Tender is the Night, Long Day's Journey into Night, Act One, A Thousand Clowns, Divorce American Style, The St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Once Upon a Time in the West, Julius Caesar, Tora, 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 Fools, Murders in the Room Work, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, A Boy and His Dog, All the President's Men, 
Comes a Horseman, Hurricane, Melvin and Howard, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Parenthood, The Adventures of Huck Finn, Philadelphia, Little Big League, Crimson Tide, and Beloved. What do we think of Jason Robards in this movie? Okay. Like, he's he's good, but, like, it's a small role. Like, it's an important role. It's a very small role. Jason Robards is doing what Jason Robards does best, Mm -hmm. which is both be a little growly, but Mm -hmm. also be understated. Yeah. That's the thing he was always really good at. The writing shines through for this character more than anything. The way that Anderson fragmented his dialogue Mm -hmm. is incredible, to me, so incredibly well done because it never feels like some sort of trope or stereotype. It feels like the fragments of somebody reaching for words. Mm -hmm. Like, and to me, that's where the beauty of this character shines is that every time I see Earl, I feel like I can see Earl trying to figure out how to say what he wants to say, but the words are escaping him. And that's what's really great about those scenes. But mm-hmm. Earl himself, you know, Jason Robards is is a really great actor and a really great character actor. So he just gets to dive into that really well. Mm-hmm. Any really great actor <laughs> could have done the same thing he's doing here. <laughs> it's the writing that really makes it sing. Earl is suffering in the film from terminal brain and lung cancer, and Robards would eventually pass away in 2000 from lung cancer. Mm -hmm. Who could have been better? George C. Scott. Ooh. Initially, Robards had to drop from the film. He was the original choice, and a great choice. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But he, he had to recover from an operation, so he wouldn't be able to commit to the schedule. So Anderson approached George C. Scott. Great. Great choice. Scott who is known to be a grade-A asshole, threw the script across the room in front of him and said, this is the worst fucking thing I've ever read. The language is terrible. That's fine. (laughs) That's amazing. So when that happened, Robards became available again, and he went with his first choice. Sure. Another who could have been better. Get ready to groan. It's Marlon Brando. I understand. (laughs) I get it. Still wouldn't have been any good. That man is canceled. So canceled. So goddamn canceled. I don't care if you're dead. You're canceled to me. If George C. Scott hadn't been a gigantic asshole, which he always was, so that one never going to change. Yeah, that's that's like that's a tall order. <laughs> we got a very wonderful swan song performance from Jason Robards here. I'll take it. And that leads us into Arpons, and boy, are there some Arpons. There are some Arpons, because <laughs> it's, it's, it's a PTA movie. And an epic one at that. We have Alfred Molina playing Solomon Solomon. We, of course, saw him in Boogie Nights. We have Melinda Dillon playing Rose Gator, Jimmy's wife. You would remember her from Close Encounters, mm-hmm. but also the mom from Christmas Story. Yep. Ricky Jay playing Burt Ramsey in The Narrator. He was in Boogie Nights as well. Mm-hmm. Also, one of the books Stanley is reading at the library is a book by Ricky Jay, Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women. Bizarre, but okay. Uh, Michael Murphy playing Alan Clickman Esquire. He was the political fundraiser dude in Nashville and has Mm -hmm. been a common guy with Robert Altman. Neil Flynn, the janitor from Scrubs, plays one of the murderers in the early scenes of the movie. He was Stanley Barry. Mm. Patton Oswalt playing Delmer Darian, the gentleman who gets killed in a car crash. Thomas Jane playing young Jimmy Gator. He was intended to have multiple roles, but had scheduling conflicts. So he is in a blink and you'll miss it role 
as the 70s version of Jimmy Gator. <laughs> Michael Bowen playing Rick Spector, Stanley's dad. This was the horrible, awful, terrible nurse Buck from Kill Bill. Okay. John Pritchett playing the police captain. He is the sound mixer for this movie. Mm-hmm. Cleo King playing Marcy. She is a longtime TV and movie character actor, but you might best remember her as the officer investigating Winston in the background check episode of New Girl. Felicity Huffman playing Cynthia. Mm -hmm. It's Felicity Huffman. Yep. Eileen Ryan playing Mary, Jimmy's assistant. She has done a lot of character actor roles, but she's also the mother of Sean and Chris Penn. Mm. Louis Guzman playing Luis. He has maybe the funniest moment in the whole movie when he's going after that kid on the other side. It's pretty pretty funny. And then like, can you give me some more milk? He just told Louis Guzman, just make some shit up. (laughs) Have fun. I I appreciate that. In a blink and you'll miss it role, Orlando Jones is playing Worm, the killer at the apartment that Officer Jim Curran goes into. There were a lot of scenes cut from the final film that actually have Worm face to face in front of the camera. Um, you do see him prominently when Curring drops his gun. Okay. But he had a much bigger role that wound up getting cut from the final film. Henry Gibson playing Thurston Howell in the bar. Okay. Clark Gregg as the What Do Kids Know floor director. Yep. Paul F. Tompkins as Chad from Seduce and Destroy. It's baby Paul F. I know, it's, it's baby. It's before it became his persona. <laughs> Yeah, he dropped his voice a little bit somewhere in there, but like it's it's still very Mr. Show, Paul F. Tompkins uh-huh. era. Mary Lynn Rice Cub playing Janet. Of course, she is a comedian of note and also was on 24 for a long time. Robert Downey Sr., who we mentioned was in Boogie Nights, he plays the What Do Kids Know show director. And behind him, out of focus a little bit, as the director's assistant is William Mapather. Yeah, mm-hmm. he makes an appearance here. In an uncredited role, Fiona Apple plays the wrong number Phil calls when trying to get a hold of Frank. Okay. Appearing in the trailer for the film, but completely shut out of the movie, Stephen Root had a role in this film that wound up getting cut out. Mm-hmm. Wonderful actor. Yeah. And finally, our director, P.T. Anderson, makes an appearance as an usher in the crowd at the game show where he confiscates a sign from an audience member. The sign reads Exodus 8. Two. Okay. And that is our Arpons, which leads us into trivia. Let's talk about those introductory stories. The Greenberry and Hill murder is an actual story. Three men were executed in a 1678 robbery mm-hmm. on perjured evidence from a man named Miles Prance, and the mystery remains unsolved to this day. Mm. The scuba diver story is a debunked urban legend. Mm-hmm. And the story about a man getting killed by a gunshot while falling from a building is a frequent hypothetical used in criminal law classes to illustrate causation. Okay. And was also appeared in an episode of Homicide, Life on the Street. Okay. Many of the paintings in the film were created by Fiona Apple, whom Anderson was dating at the time. Mm-hmm. Over 7,900 rubber frogs were created for the frog rain scenes. The remainder were created using CGI, which you can kind of tell. No real frogs were harmed in the production, so mm-hmm. it's good to know. When Donnie rants that Samuel Johnson never had his life shit on, that's actually a huge lie. <clears throat> Dr. Johnson suffered disfiguring facial scars from childhood illness, won a place at Oxford, but had to drop out because his family had no money, lost his wife and his brother at a relatively young age, endured years of humiliating poverty, and was arrested for debt 
after publishing his famous dictionary, struggled with clinical depression and possibly Tourette's syndrome, and in his final year suffered from painful inflammation of the testicles. <laughs> so Donnie is wrong. Samuel Johnson had the worst life. Yeah. Uh, around the time of the film, if you dialed 877-TAME-HER, you would get the pitch of Tom Cruise trying to hype you on Seduce and Destroy. Mm -hmm. In the credits for What Do Kids Know, there was a web address, wdkk.com, that would leave you to Magnolia's website. So some fun tie-in promotions. He, I remember him being a guy who like started that trend a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, other people definitely did it for bigger movies, but he kind of started this trend of like, I'm just going to throw those Easter eggs and we're going to make them real things that you can go visit. When Claudia is cutting cocaine at her table, it is off the jewel case for Amy Mann's CD, I'm with Stupid. <laughs> Masonic symbols appear all over the What Do Kids Know studio, and Ricky Jay's character has a Masonic ring on his hand. As they head out for the show, Jimmy says the line, we met up on the level and we're parting on the square which is a Kipling phrase that is very similar to the Masonic Farewell. Okay. It's giving some indication there, some, some deeper connections and ties to the supernatural or odd occurrences. At the end credits of What Do Kids Know, we get the only other clue of what Earl Partridge did because the show is a Partridge production. Yeah. The cards Jimmy Gator reads from say, Our kids teach us on the back. Oh, okay. And during the frog sequence, Curring drags Donnie over to a mobile station to take cover. The original name of the mobile company, Magnolia Petroleum. Oh, interesting. If, if you are curious, there are tons and tons of coincidences and things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many were intentional on Paul Thomas Anderson's part. But this is definitely one of those movies that, no matter what, deliberate or not, has a lot of that sort of destiny feeling around it. And I think that's part of what made this movie endure in some ways. It's like okay. there's a whole lot that is like, wow, even past all of this, all this stuff connects in weird ways. It's interesting like that. And finally, let's mention some awards. It did get nominated for three Academy Awards. Ah, yes. Tom Cruise was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a well-deserved nomination. He lost that year to Michael Caine for The Cider House Rules. Okay. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. It, of course, lost to Alan Ball's American Beauty. Yeah. Have to admit, it's a tighter script. And this script is not what's so great about this movie. It's, it's a better script. It's doing a similar thing with all these like intertwined stories, but it's better. It's tighter. And it's, it's a more compelling slice of life film. Yeah, I, I honestly, I haven't ever seen The Cider House Rules. I don't want to judge it too harshly. Mm -hmm. I wish P.T. Anderson had gotten nominated for director. Mm -hmm. because I think that's where he really shines in this movie. Yeah. And maybe not for that best original screenplay, because I think that's far more where he deserves the credit for this film, is in his directorial vision, not necessarily his writing. But that's me. And finally, Save Me by Amy Mann was nominated for best original song. It lost to You'll Be In My Heart from Tarzan, and nominated that year as well were Blame Canada. And now my brain is remembering uh, Robin Williams performing that at the Oscars. And When She Loved Me from Toy Story 2. Oh, okay. Neither one of those is going to win. Okay. None of those are going to win. I understand. Like, Phil Collins, that's a, sl that's a great song. It's a great Disney song. Phil Collins also makes me go to sleep. <laughs> so no. Save Me is a better song. It's a better song. It's, it reminds me of uh, Miss Misery from Good Will Hunting. 
but that's probably why because that was the year before yeah it's this it's in the same tone and the same vibe but it's like this song is better than the other song it's better and it it fits so well right at the end Ugh. yeah but i'm i'm really happy that amy was nominated even if she wasn't gonna win yeah yep so, so like i ain't i ain't mad <laughs> like i am a little bit because phil collins doesn't need shit and that leads us to ratings mm-hmm. for every film we have its own dedicated rating system let's just do it we're gonna do magnolias it's so simple yeah, it's right there it was magnolias or frogs <laughs> I too many squished frogs. We don't need to relive that. Gross. Yeah, I know. This is my movie. I've seen it before. Mm-hmm. I still love it. I still really do. But I have to be fair and recognize the flaws that are there. As polarizing as this movie is, as much as some people are not going to want to see it, I'm going to give this a three and a half. I want to give it higher, and and like gut feeling was about a four or a four and a half. But in talking about it for sure, we missed the opportunity to fully tie the whole thing together mm-hmm. in a way that's fully satisfying. And so while there's so much that I love and I, I really do like adore this movie and how it tells stories, but <laughs> it's got problems and it's not he's still figuring out how he's going to do stuff at this point for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Destroy me. Re- wreck my love. <laughs> I don't I don't have a gut instinct on the number. Uh-huh. But the the writing is a big problem. It's a big problem. You need to cut an hour out of this movie. <laughs> like that and I, and I'm not saying that because it's 3 hours. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm the girl who saw Titanic 6 times in the movie theater. I will sit through a long fucking movie. We sat through this long fucking movie. <laughs> we sat through that thing Mark, the the Irishman. We sat through all of that. Oh dear god. And talk about needing to cut some bullshit from a film. Yeah, so this this is we needed an we needed somebody to be like, dude, no, <laughs> dude, you've gone too far. But the things I like, I really do like. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a three. Okay, I go three. The performance the performances by everyone are great. So good. The concept is great. I would not be angry to come across this movie on TV. Like I probably wouldn't sit through the whole thing again, but I I'd, I'd fast forward through the shit I don't like. That's what would happen if I watch it again. Fast forward through that much, and that would be okay. But if you know you're coming up on a scene you love, you're going to stick around for a minute. Yeah, totally. This is one where it would be interesting to cut out the storyline that I don't like, storylines I don't like, and see how, and and that opening coincidence bullshit. Because, <laughs> you know what? There's another way to tie that in. You make that about Stanley. It's Stanley, it's Stanley giving a presentation or Stanley explaining this because he studied it. That's how you tie that in because as it, as it is now, as the film, how it is now, it doesn't connect in any way. It's just like, oh, I, I came to a lecture before three more hours of movie. So if you cut that and you cut out the, the characters I don't want, it'd be interesting to watch the movie and see how it flows that way. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to say, I'm going to go three. I'm going to go three. Well, now we're jumping back to our other Anderson and we are jumping ahead 13 years. Yeah. We are time warping because, see, we had both started to watch all the films of these guys after this. We really yeah, had. At, at this point, we like they at this point, they then made something that was so big that we had to see it. Yeah. And then this movie came out and we just hadn't gotten to it yet. We have been missing some Wes Anderson films. Yep. And it's time. It's time. We need to get caught up. We're going to watch Moonrise Kingdom. <gasps> a story about kids. This camp movie. It's a camp movie and a story about youth. 
I'm curious. I'm curious how he tackles this because we know he can go off the rails a little bit every now and then. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Isle of Dogs. We're not going to talk about Isle of Dogs. Yeah, I know. But I do... I have heard such great things about this movie. People really revere this one. In a personal way. Uh-huh. And I'm really excited to finally sit down and watch it because totally. I've been meaning to for almost 10 years now. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. 2012. Yeah. That's almost 10 years ago. So, yeah, it's time. Time to do it. That's why we're doing this series. We need to get caught up on some shit. Let's get some scout uniforms on and get ready to go hang out with the campers. On my honor. I'll see you next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This is David's long-winded way of saying she's right, but I don't like it. I think that, well, I... <laughs> I'm trying to build off of it and then words failed. And then I was like, hey, right. Um, <laughs>